Well, thank you so much again for coming out today for our discussion on Christian understandings of the built environment. I'd like to begin our time together in a bit of a roundabout way by quoting from one of the priceless pieces of children's literature, a work which won some of Britain's most prestigious children's book awards. Regrettably, the author passed away about a month ago. And perhaps you know to which work I'm referring? Well, you're talking about Richard Adams. Richard Adams and I guess his seminal work, right? And Watership Down, wonderful. Indeed, the work is none other than Watership Down, which I hear is might, I believe is coming out next year in some sort of animated form, maybe on Netflix? Or did they, well, another, a newer release. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, Watership Down is the 1972 adventure novel that tells the story of a small group's, group of rabbits who live in southern England. Essentially, the novel, in a bit similar fashion to Animal Farm, anthropomorphizes the rabbit herd. And Adams does a brilliant job evoking the language, the culture, and the mythology of the rabbits as he describes their escape uh, from the destruction of their war. And that's not really a spoiler because it happens right at the beginning of the book. So don't worry. You can still watch it next year. So I think we have a fair number of us familiar with the story. Now supposedly, supposedly this lecture is not about children's literature, but about a theology of the built environment. As such, if I were to begin our talk today with a quote from Watership Down, as in fact I'm doing, would you have any notion as to what passage of the book I might be referring to? for those of you who know it better than others. And in terms of uh, spaces, environments, of course there's so much description of the southern South English countryside that's lovely. You can't be wrong. Well, you could be wrong. But the, fact that, the fact that you're at least guessing you can't be wrong. I haven't read the book, uh-huh. but is it something about the Warren? Ah, uh, really? You haven't read it? Are you for real? No, no. And what's your name? I'm sorry. Will. Will. Thank you so much. That's brilliant, Will. Okay. So we're going to move it along. Yeah, there you go, Will. Well, the built environment, right? A rabbit is going to build uh, a warrant. The, the herd is going to build a warrant. And so does that bring to mind anybody, any of you others, what, what passage it might be from? What's the most particular aspect of their warren, and also another warren which they encounter. No? Still early. So they have a beautiful, uh, basically, communal hall in the center that they call the honeycomb. And I'll describe it by giving the quote right here. So this excerpt comes from the near the beginning of the novel when the protagonist rabbit Hazel comes upon a foreign warren. Hazel had supposed that he and one or two of his comrades would be taken to see the chief rabbit in his burrow, <coughs> after which they would all be given different places to go. It was this separation of which Hazel had been afraid. He now realized with astonishment that there was apparently a part of the warren underground which was big enough to contain them all together. He followed their guides and came into an open place. His whiskers could feel no earth in front, and none was near his side. There was a good deal of air ahead of him. 
he could feel movement and there was considerable space above his head. Also, there were several rabbits near him. It had not occurred to him that there would be a place underground where he would be exposed on three sides. The size of the place must be immense. He was at one end of the largest burrow he had ever been in. Rabbits have their own conversations and formalities, but these are few and short by human standards. In the great burrow, however, things happened differently. The rabbits mingled naturally. All over the burrow, both the newcomers and those who were at home were accustoming themselves to each other in their own way and in their own time. So one artist depiction here of either the great burrow he stumbled upon there or the subsequent honeycomb that he would build to replicate this. In his work, A Theology of the Built Environment, Justice, Empowerment, and Redemption, Tim Gorin argues that, for good or ill, all buildings, from the humblest garden shed to the grandest cathedral, make moral statements. All buildings make moral statements. The great burrow, which Hazel discovers in the foreign worn, is unlike any burrow he has ever seen. Held up ingeniously by surrounding tree roots, this burrow is massive, bigger than Hazel could ever have dreamed of. In fact, it is so impressive that when Hazel leaves behind the foreign warren to continue searching for a new place for his own herd, he makes the decision that when his own herd finally finds a new home, they will most certainly try to replicate it. So they do, naming it the Honeycomb, and this communal space becomes the hearts of the community. It becomes the place where they do what rabbits do when they not only feel entirely secure underground, but also have enough room to congregate as an entire herd. They share stories, tell myths, and have a hopping good time. (laughs) The honeycomb, then, becomes a space that communicates moral statements about the rabbit herd. This herd, unlike some of the rival herds, is one that finds its identity in community, intimacy, unity, and genuineness. The honeycomb symbolizes this identity and it nourishes and sustains the very communal life of Hazel's herd. Translated to the human world, the effect of the honeycomb upon the rabbit community is nothing new. The fields of architecture and urban planning, along with others, have long considered how the built environment affects those who (coughs) dwell within the built environment. Works like Jan Jacobs' 1960s The Death and Life of great American cities have been fundamental in spurring discussion regarding the intimate connection between the built environment and the life of communities. Were we to enter fully into this discussion, we'd need a full course or maybe a degree's worth of courses uh, to unpack the riches therein. Thus, today, rather than bite off too big a chunk, I will be so bold as to assume that most of us probably agree with Winston Churchill's nugget of wisdom First we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. First we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. Assuming we, or at least most of us, are in agreement with, uh, with Churchill here, I would like then to consider the question at the heart of Gorin's theology of the built environment. He asks, What happens when we bring together the Bible and the writings of town planners, 
Urban Theorists and Architects. This book is one tentative attempt to find out. However, before going any further in our lecture, the obvious caveat must be made that for learner that learners exchange is for learners, right? Speaker included, right? I do not claim to be an expert on the topic, and so I was both really excited but also a little intimidated that David Lay might join us. <laughs> Some of my own interests, of course, stem from two and a half years ago with my parents who came in from out of town, and Maria, we took the wonderful Regent bus tour, which I recommend for everybody in terms of exegeting Vancouver and beginning that discussion. It was lovely. I highly recommend it. So... Uh, some of us are very likely authentic experts on the topic. Um, I can only claim that I hope one day to become an expert on the topic of Christian understandings of architecture, urban planning, urban growth, cities, place, and space, and not necessarily professionally, although I'm starting to consider a roundabout way to things, but I think this expertise in this field is really valuable for the entire Christian body, right? The entire church. In fact, uh, my um, ah, in fact, my undergraduate degrees were in music and international relations. And so, do you see the connection? <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <right? laughs> my region focuses on biblical Hebrew and Greek. All right. Okay. You might one person, one friend did call me either a, a true Jeffersonian in terms, I think diverse interests, or just really confused. <laughs> I think the latter, if you ask my dad. Well, then, you might say, <laughs> from where does your personal interest in these fields stem? Isn't your focus at region on biblical languages? Well, I'm glad you asked. Take one minute and think to yourself of your happy place. Close your eyes and imagine yourself in the environment where you are most joyful, most thankful, most yourself. Go ahead, and if you can't think of just one place, contemplate two or three, okay? So just one to two minutes here. Close your eyes and imagine. try to find your happy place, or if you've already thought of this, take a brief trip there. Do you see that place? What are you doing there? What are you thinking there? And what does it look like? Is it a natural landscape of water and trees? Is it a rural landscape of farmland and livestock? Is it a cityscape featuring museums or art galleries? As Kyle mentioned in my introduction, I'm a huge lover of travel. I'm sure as many of you are. Especially as a language lover who finds life in cross-cultural and foreign language communication. As such, I've been blessed throughout my life to travel to a number of the most spectacular natural sites on the planet, including Maria and my honeymoon amidst the waterfalls, geysers, and hot springs of... Take a guess. Well, I kind of gave it away with the hot springs. Of Iceland, yes. And this is, uh, I believe, Golfoss, the beautiful waterfall. Or Detefoss, the beautiful waterfall. And yet... When I conjure to mind my happy places, I nearly always see myself in urban or semi-urban environments, surrounded by a built environment that, to put it concisely, inspires. 
Can you name it? Identify it? If you've had the privilege to go there. It's so choice. <laughs> Lincoln Center in New York City. Give me two tickets to jazz at Lincoln Center and I am as happy as a clam. La Sagrada Familia, Antony Gaudí's still incomplete basilica in the heart of uh, Barcelona. Begun, of course, in 1882, but still incomplete with his death pretty early on in the building process. And my latest favorite and one of my happiest places in the world, I think Maria would know. I haven't shared it with her yet. But, anybody know that one? Yours truly. The new Halifax Central Library in Nova Scotia. Opened in 2014, built by, uh, I think, two, two different, well, cooperating Danish architectural firms. So either it could be, maybe you love it as much as I love it, or you think it's a monstrosity. But <laughs> I think most of us find it fascinating. In visiting these world-renowned built locales, I notice that my senses go into overdrive. I am hyper-aware of the use of light, space, proportion, angles, materials, and colors. In fact, the one time that I went to one of my other great happy places, the Museo Guggenheim Bilbao, I spent five hours in the museum only seeing about 50% of the actual art exhibitions until I was kicked out at closing. So delighted was I to walk back and forth, walk and rewalk and rewalk again every corner of Frank Gehry's creation. I believe that my sensitivity to the built environment stems from days when my parents would take me as a kid to the spacious, welcoming, light-infused National Gallery of Art at home in Washington, D.C., where Marie and I are from, a locale where we still enjoy visiting with our parents, my mom, to this day. However, it was not until the last year and a half at Regent College that I began to reflect upon why I'm so drawn to these built environments. What is it about them that always leaves me thirsting for the next trip back just as soon as I leave the grounds? In Tim Gorringe's words, the human soul cries out for the nourishment of beauty. The human soul cries out for the nourishment of beauty. And for me, experiencing built environments at Lincoln Center, La Sagrada Familia, Halifax Central Library, Museo Guggenheim, and the National Gallery deeply satisfies my soul. And yet in spending time marinating in the works of Gordon's and others, I have come to believe that I love these places and structures, not only for the beauty that I encounter in them, but also because there's a deeper Christian theological rationale at work in my appreciation of these built environments. And it's to this theological rationale that we turn, focusing on Christian ideas of place, the city, and the built environments. So three main parts, place, the city, and leading up to the final discussion of the built environment. I want to embark on this lecture first with Christian ideas of place, as these considerations underpin any discussion of the built environment. There are a number of fascinating reads in the topic, on the topic. Two of those that I chose to focus on are John Inge's, and forgive me with authors' names, A Christian Theology of Place and Leonard uh, Halmarsen's No Home Like Place. Halmarsen does well to point out that for a long time, Christians have downplayed an understanding of place. In assessing their own lives, most of us Christians will speak of our callings and vocations, 
but we don't nearly so often speak of our place or places. We often regard place as irrelevant. At least I know I did through most of my Christian life. Hamilton argues that Christians are made to make a particular corner of creation our home. Place is not irrelevant. We are made for place. He draws this emphasis on the importance of place in the Christian tradition from the understanding that the biblical story is not just about going to heaven when we die. It's about heaven and an earth becoming one. God's purposes in creation being fulfilled. As Christians, our pilgrimage through this barren land is ultimately about becoming, in the words of Isaiah 58, a well-watered garden. And as Christians look to herald Christ and advance this redemption, we don't escape the limits of place in doing so, but we embrace and enter them. In doing so, we follow the model of our Lord and Savior, who in the incarnation entered place. The infinite God in the historical narrative of Israel entered a specific region of the Middle East, hallowing and making sacred place, matter, and ordinary things like bread and wine. We then, as the church, serve as caretakers of this earthly creation. In the creation of the world in Genesis, if it is, as I would argue, and following Ian Proven and others, John Walton, in light, if Genesis is the creation is read in light of comparative ancient Near Eastern temple mythology, then Genesis 1 to 2 teaches us that we serve as priests in God's earthly temple, caretaking for that temple. The cosmos is God's temple. All earth is sacred place and space, and we are caretakers of God's good creation. John Inges, A Christian Theology of Place, written in 2003, 12, year before, 12 years before Hamilton's work, touches upon many similar concepts. Inges traces how a Western intellectual tradition has long downgraded the importance of place, particularly in comparison with earlier Greek thought, emphasizing, and, and this downgrading has resulted in an emphasis instead of place on space and time. According to Inge, 13th century discussion over the extent of the power of God ended up opening the door to notions of infinite space and time, allowing for the emergence of concepts which underlie Newtonian physics, particularly the, infin the infinity of the physical universe. Subsequently, for Galileo and Newton in the 17th century, places become portions of absolute space, having no uh, significance, really, in their own right. Inge goes into much greater detail, including breaking down Plato and Platonic and Aristotelian notions of space and place. Suffice it to say that Inge's quotation of Martin Heidegger, the 20th century German philosopher, makes clear Inge's understanding of the demise of place. So it's a long quote, but the demise of place really rings through. All distances in time and space are shrinking. Man, oh, and in 1971 he's writing this. Man now reaches overnight by plane, places which are form, which formerly took weeks and months of travel. He now receives instant information by radio of events which he formerly learned about only years later, if at all. Man puts the longest distances behind him in the shortest time. Yet the frantic abolition of all distances brings no nearness. For nearness does not consist in shortness of distance, 
What is least remote from us in point of distance, by virtue of its picture on film or its sound on radio, can remain far from us. What is incalculably far from us in point of distance can be near to us. What is happening here when as a result of the abolition of great distances, everything is equally far and equally near? What is this uniformity in which everything is neither far nor near? <laughs> everything gets lumped together into uniform distancelessness. What is it that unsettles and thus terrifies? It shows itself and hides itself in the way in which everything presences, namely in the fact that despite all conquest of distances, the nearness of things remains absent. The nearness of things remain absent, the demise of place. Heidegger was writing again in 1971, thank goodness he wasn't around for Facebook. Imagine his consternation. <laughs> For Inge, then, in quoting Heidegger, a sense of place was lost during modernity, and modern society would do well to recognize that our own Western culture has lost a sense of place. Preoccupations with the logic of space tend to suppress the feelings of place in its particularity. The contrast of this loss of particularities of place with the biblical example is stark. In the Old Testament, biblical faith is found in belonging to and referring to that particular place which, the, which it expresses and tells of the historicity of the community of Israel. In Old Testament understanding, the promised land is always a place with Yahweh, a place filled with memories of life with him, with promises and with his promises and vows and vows made towards him. In other words, the Old Testament narrative is rooted in the conception of a storied place. This affirmation of the importance of place is further developed in the New Testament, above all, in the Incarnation. Inge here quotes T.F. Torrance, the 20th century Scottish Protestant theologian. While the Incarnation does not mean that God is limited by space and time, it asserts the reality of space and time for God in the actuality of his relations with us, and at the same time binds us to space and time in our relations with him. For Inge, it's clear from the incarnation that places are the seat of relations with God and as he moves in the world. The incarnation asserts the importance of place in different form, but no less important than the Old Testament. So we see this emphasis both in old and new. Although the incarnation implies a movement away from an emphasis upon the Holy Land and upon Israel, it initiates an unprecedented celebration, in Inge's word, an unprecedented celebration of materiality and therefore of place in God's relations with humanity. Moreover, the conversion of Paul in the sense of being grounded in the particularity of place shares dissimilarity with Old Testament narratives and with the Incarnation. It's noteworthy that Paul's conversion occurred at a particular place, just outside Damascus, on a particular road or street. While this study in place and space, uh, what it has confirmed then is that Christian religion is not a religion of salvation from places. It is the rel religion of salvation in and through places. A helpful reminder of this truth is pilgrimage. And Marie and I are really hoping huh, someday we have to do the, the pilgrimage to Santiago Compostela, you know, through southern France and mostly in northern Spain, right? Uh, 
pilgrimage is a journey to places where divine human encounter has taken place. Places have story. And sacred places are those places whose story is associated with God's self-revelation and with the lives of the holy, with the saints. These then are the places which attract pilgrimage. This emphasis on place, before we go to the next section, does not seek to undermine the fundamental Christian reality that true worship is, as Jesus tells the Samaritan woman in John 4, in spirit and in truth. It doesn't undermine this. Indeed, an emphasis on place can be made to turn in upon itself and can actually lead to idolatrous distraction if if you go too far and overemphasize down the road of particularity of place. But if kept in a proper framework, an emphasis on place can enrich and deepen human sensibilities, bringing together past and present and living relationships. Having established the importance of place in Christianity, we can affirm that in a discussion of the theology of the built environment, place is essential. Yet before going to the second part of this lecture, I would like to ask one question here. And I want to focus here on, in particular, the city. Uh, For me, it is the city that is the most essential area of the discussion of the built environment. Why is this so? Of course, this is not to be exclusive and say the discussion is only about the city. Not at all. But I think it is the focal point, at least in my own considerations. And as it's made clear in uh, Um and Buzzard's um, Why Cities Matter to God, the Culture, and the Church, the city is more important in the 21st century than ever. This is simply because more people live in the cities than any other time in human history. Never before had a majority of the world's population been an urban population, Mm -hmm. but this became true in 2011. In fact, the UN Population Division study on world population suggests that by 2050, the world will be nearly 70% urban by 2050. And this is not just a numbers game, as these authors make clear. Cities shape the world. What happens in cities doesn't stay in cities, but spreads. As the city goes, so goes the broader culture. And again, this is not to absolutize the effect of cities and not look at all at the rural environment. But nevertheless, power is concentrated in Washington, D.C., Ottawa, and Beijing. Television and film are focused in Los Angeles, New York, and Mumbai. Fashion, Paris and Milan, technology, Silicon Valley and Tokyo, etc. Furthermore, as previously mentioned, Genesis 1 and 2 speaks of God calling humanity to continue what God had himself been doing in creation to create. This creation was called for in the command to multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth, cultivate the garden, Genesis 1 and 2. For Amin Buzzard, this mandate was ultimately an urban mandate, a call to create settlements where people could live and work together to be fruitful, multiply, cultivate, and flourish. I'm not sure if I entirely agree with them on this, this. This mandate was ultimately an urban mandate, but it's an interesting thought for sure. The significance of cities is certain. What is not certain is whether this significance is for positive and negative effect. Hence, I'd like to pause for a brief activity. Please write down, and I I didn't bring pencil and paper. I didn't bring pencils, but I have paper. Please write down the first five to ten words that come to mind when you think of cities, 
brainstorm real quick for one or two minutes, and then share your your responses with your neighbor. Hopefully that spurs further conversation after the lecture and down through the weeks and months and years, right? The significance of cities is certain. What is not certain is whether the significance is for positive or negative effect, as I said before the activity. Taking stock of your responses, how many of you wrote down things that are positive in tone? How many were mostly positive? (laughs) Only about half. So, how many of the things you wrote down were negative or mostly negative? Ah, interesting, right? And of course, this is so encultured and contextualized largely based on where we come from, right? Indeed, when thinking about cities, we are all making judgments grounded in our own personal experience. For myself, having at some point either lived either in or near cities such as Washington, D.C., San Francisco, uh, Madrid and study abroad, Beijing when I used to teach in China, and now Vancouver, I find myself inevitably drawn to the sights, sounds, flavors, and pulse of the big cities. But more important than my personal preference, or necessarily yours, is the biblical testimony. What does the Bible have to say about cities? Can you remember the first mention of a city in the Bible? Mm -hmm. Yes. Genesis. Genesis, of course. Indeed, in Genesis 4, as um, Rogerson and Vincent point out in the city and biblical perspective... Genesis 4, right after Cain betrays and murders his very own brother, Abel, God's grace is ushered forth in an offer to actually protect Cain, and subsequently, the account of the building of the first city immediately follows. You might want to go back and read it. It's a bit shocking. According to Rogerson and Vincent, the fact that Cain is a murderer who owes his continuing life only to the mercy of God imports a bit of ambiguity into the nature of the first city. However, in the Tower of Babel narrative in Genesis 11, a population that had no interest in serving as city builders for God and in honoring God build instead for themselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. Genesis 11, 1-9, according to Rogerson and Vincent, uh, in light of the fact that that cities were built by forced labor, by slave labor at the time, Genesis 11, 1-9 gives a very negative view of the city, a place of human exploitation and human aggrandizement at the expense of God and other humans. In Genesis 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah are established as basically a byword to epitomize the sum of human wickedness. The Old Testament traditions about Sodom and Gomorrah invite readers to think profoundly about cities and, and what it is that makes them bad and good. Indeed, other negative portraits of cities are found in the Old Testament, including descriptions in Song of Songs, Lamentations, and Psalms, where the city is described as a place of loneliness and frustration, a place where truth and justice are corrupted. We could go on for a long while. And yet in the Old Testament, there are numerous examples to the contrary. As Umm and Buzzard highlight in the Why Cities Matter book, in Numbers and Judges, the Bible repeatedly describes the city as a place of refuge the cities of refuge. King David selected and developed Jerusalem as the center of Israel's worship and the capital location for political, cultural, and commercial life. 
Jerusalem was established as the city of David in 2 Samuel. But even more importantly, it became known as the city of God. Furthermore, various psalms in describing how God dwells in the holy place in his city paint a portrait of God as the ultimate urban dweller, according to uh, Amen Buzzer. God is a lover of the city, and he is concerned for its welfare. In Psalm 48, the people are asked to walk around the streets of Jerusalem, if you remember the language, uh, consider its walls, consider its ramparts. Right? Uh, the people are encouraged to marvel at the beauty of God's architecture, detailing the various structures of the city and proclaiming to everyone and to the next generations that God made all of it and that he loves it all. According to Amin Buzzer, God's focus on and concern for the city continues in the New Testament. In Luke, Jesus' ministry is set in and finds its goal in an urban context as the story is all shaped around Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. As Jesus moves toward Jerusalem, he experiences the full brokenness of the earthly city, coming into contact with all that is wrong with cities marked by sin. In all the Gospels, Jesus was concerned to enter fully into earthly cities and be present and minister as God, bringing hope and life to those who had been forsaken. In Acts, it's clear that Jesus Christ has created a church that is bent toward geographical expansion that happens primarily in the cities from Jerusalem to Antioch and beyond. As for Paul, he was an urban dweller whose life, ministry, writings, and death took place in cities. And as a result of his ministry, as a result of his ministry, uh, there grew into birth, right, into being the network wonderful network of vibrant city churches full of urban Christians. Yeah, well, what are we to make of Hebrews 13, 14, which declares that Christians have no lasting city, but are to seek the city that is to come, right? And you recognize here, of course, first in Hebrews, but then you recognize language of Augustine in the city of God, right? City of God, city of man, this uh, dichotomy of sorts. In agreement with our priestly caretaker vocation that we have already mentioned, the fact that Christians have no lasting city but are to seek the city to come in no way means that we are to ignore the earthly city. To paraphrase Tim Keller, and this is beautiful, we are citizens of one city, yet full-time residents of another. Our primary allegiance is given to a city from which we derive our most normative beliefs and practices, the city of God. And yet we live in our city of residences as full participants. We do not live as natives, tourists, or travelers. We are resident aliens. By his grace, Jesus lost the city that was so that we could become citizens of the city to come, making us salt and light in the city that is. By his grace, Jesus lost the city that was so we could become citizens of the city to come, making us salt and light in the city that is, writes Keller. This truth is confirmed in the off-cited verse from Jer Jeremiah 29, in which the Israelites are told, even in exile, to seek the shalom of the city and thereby find their welfare. In other words, if the city prospers and flourishes, then the Israelites were to prosper and flourish in their exile. <coughs> Finally, any biblical treatment of the city cannot forget to mention at the end... Revelation 21, perhaps the greatest affirmation of the city in Christian understanding. Here we see the consummation of a new heaven and a new earth in terms of a city, the new Jerusalem. 
the New Jerusalem is full of cultural masterpieces featuring walls and streets and inscriptions and fine jewels. It has gates that are always open. There's no temple in the city because all the city's inhabitants have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. In short, as Um and Buzzard assert, all that this city was ever meant to be but failed to be, one day it will be in the new Jerusalem. The city is the expression for the full fulfillment of the Garden of Eden. And that new city is our future home. Much more could be said about a Christian conception of cities, of course, including the sense of eschatology. If you're interested in additional reading, I suggest Philip Sheldrick's The Spiritual City. He gives a thorough account of the historical development in Christianity of the notion of city. He, in fact, clarifies that Augustinian distinction between the city of God and the city of man, highlighting that in Augustine's understanding, Christians could contribute to the actual life of human cities by seeking the civic good and by collaboratively working to improve the human city. Sheldrick also discusses, for instance, Aquinas' understanding of the city as the pinnacle of human community and human virtue. So reviewing what we've said in the briefest terms, we can say that in a Christian understanding, place matters, cities matter. Rooted in these truths, what then is a Christian conception of place-making in the cities? What is a Christian theology of the built environment? Well, as Sean Benesh points out in Blueprints for a Just City, the role of the church in urban planning and shaping the city's built environment, we should remember that as God designed the New Jerusalem, he is, claims Banesh, in a sense, an architect and urban planner. Banesh poignantly pens, Before time, God was doing more than plotting out canyons and shorelines. He was also drafting plans for buildings and then cities. God is a God of cities as much as he is of the wilderness and never-ending cosmos, writes Banesh. For Banesh, the notion of God as urban planner comes distinctly to fruition in considering how good, helpful, hopeful, and healthy urban design is an outflow of God's justice. Human flourishing of the sort we see in the New Jerusalem of Revelation 21 is tied directly into the quality of place and built environment, particularly as these environments create for human flourishing by promoting justice. And Banesh notes in particular the human need for stability, security, and accessibility in terms of living in communal spaces. Churches then are uniquely positioned to participate in this just structuring of our cities. There are not too many organizations or institutions that have the pulse of a city quite like churches, many churches do. Churches are rooted in neighborhoods, uh, which means that they are on the front lines of seeing the impact of both good and bad urban design and how it impacts congregants. Churches know what ails a neighborhood and what brings it hope and joy. Here, Banesh points to collective power over the process of urban, urbanization, arguing that citizens together need to assume and assert their right to influencing and forming cities. Banesh argues that the power of spaces, whether for good or bad, directly impacts how people live and function in the city and how people engage with one another and even how people, how happy people are in the city. All truths 
illustrated in Watership Down. In another of his Banesh's books, entitled Exegeting the City, What You Need to Know About Church Planting Today, he challenges churches to move beyond the rote question of, what can we do to plant more churches? And instead to emphasize the more holistic question, how can the gospel best be expressed for human flourishing? What do our cities and suburbs need for human flourishing? For Banesh, it may be new churches, of course, but it might also be more relational interconnectivity, greater social capital for all residents, more bike paths, better public transit, higher densities, perhaps lower densities, better systems to welcome new immigrants, more local businesses, and fewer chain stores. Any discussion of the flourishing of modern-day cities cannot avoid, then, the elephant in the room, gentrification, Banesh recognizes the uh, numerous vantage points from which to address the issue. Economics, racial tensions, community development, housing, gender, sexuality, immigration, these are all entwined in uh, gentrification. And he calls Christians to consider the effects of gentrification from below and posits the ever so significant question, how do churches and ministry leaders navigate the terrain of gentrification to bring about a more gospel-centered human flourishing. As every city and neighborhood is unique, the church must depend on coupling action with thorough investigation, exploration, and prayer. For Sheldrick in the spiritual city, the matter of human flourishing involves the concept that a city should not merely help people to survive but encourage people to dream. Cities have a capacity to focus a range of physical, intellectual, and creative energies simply because they combine differences of age, ethnicity, culture, gender, and religion in unparalleled ways, writes Sheldrick. A successful city is thus, I'm oh, sorry, a successful and inspired state of mind of the city offers a vision of human community that is capable of promoting coexistence and flourishing between strangers. In uniting community, the goal of city dreaming centers upon concerns of social inclusiveness, altruistic citizenship, opportunity, and hospitality. The good city, Sheldrick writes, the good city greets the stranger and welcomes the newcomer. He calls for systems and spaces that are accessible, hospitable, and inclusive. One example is Port Sunlight UK. Has anybody heard of Port Sunlight? Any of our British <laughs> Wonderful. Port Sunlight UK, a community created in 1888 by William Lever, a devout uh, congregationalist and businessman who applied his Christian ideals to his business life. Between 1899 and 1914, 800 houses were built to house his workers, a population of 3,500 people. The Garden Township had houses, each block of which were designed by a different architect, and public buildings. A open-air swimming pool, an art gallery, a small hospital, schools, church, and a non-alcoholic hotel. Schoenberg recounts that Lever introduced welfare schemes and provided for education, which promoted art, literature, science, and music. Lever stater's aim in this community of Port Sunlight were to socialize and Christianize business relations and get back to that close family brotherhood that existed in the good old days. Such is an incredible example of how cities should and must affirm the sacredness of people, community, 
and human transcendence. Finally, if one is looking for some truly practical suggestions of how to implement the idea of human flourishing in the urban environment, Eric Jacobson's Sidewalks in the Kingdom and the Space Between are wonderful in terms of delving into the nitty-gritty of architecture and urban planning, and also in terms of filling out a theology of the built environment. Jacobson is concerned that we have ample cause, sorry, Jacobson is convinced that we have ample cause to invest in our cities because in them we find our welfare. We find our welfare in their welfare. In Sidewalks, he points to two, to uh, six, sorry, in Sidewalk, he points to six markers of the city that help us to focus on what is good and valuable in our cities. These six markers are public spaces, mixed-use zoning, beauty and quality in the built environment, strong local economy, mixed-use zoning, oh, sorry, <laughs> and, the pro- and the presence of strangers. So that is, again, public spaces, mixed-use zoning, beauty and quality, local economy, the presence of strangers. Uh, public spaces require us to share with one another and truly dwell among our neighbors. Mixed-use neighborhoods give people additional reasons to travel on or through public spaces by giving them interesting and useful destinations to which they can walk, thereby increasing the possibilities of what he terms incidental contact between neighbors. Both appreciation of beauty and the ability to create beauty are God's given gifts. And Jacobson reminds us that people of all classes need beauty, and dignity in their daily lives. People of all classes need beauty and dignity in their daily lives. Strong local economies include locally owned businesses that offer a sense of deep identity and rootedness in a community. And the six I forgot to mention initially. Critical mass is a term he uses. Critical mass refers to the density required to catalyze and sustain civic groups and interests, such as a local theater or music groups. Uh, Jacobson has spent a lot of his time living in Missoula, Montana, and so he writes, for instance, of the sponsorship of the museum, uh, the Missoula's uh, theater for the arts, essentially, and what that means in terms of the local community. Encouraging the growth of these six markers, Jacobson, who has been on the Congress for Congress for New Urbanism, advocates a new urbanist approach to urban planning an approach that directly communicates the values of civility, hospitality, neighborliness, and inherent worth that are cr- the inherent worth of the human being that are critical to any city. Uh, the space between, in the space between, he looks like he looks at what it looks like to live as the church in the time and space between the Garden of Creation and the city of Jerusalem. What does that look like to live as the church in between these two bookends? In answering this question, he further develops his argument that community and geography are inseparably linked. And he breaks down in wonderfully clear detail his argument for the advantage of mixed-use, pedestrian-friendly neighborhoods that are built slowly over time, even over multiple generations, according to the idea of piecemeal urbanism over time in different parts and portions. He even addresses the geography of sidewalks and curb radius in considering the values of placemaking. He speaks of 
enclosures of building, aspect ratios, the leaking space of building design, which leaking space just essentially refers to if you look at any major thoroughfare uh, or so many in the United States and we just have, you know, fast food joint, fast food joint, uh, retail giant, and this leaking space in comparison between where these buildings are set and the actual road and sidewalk. So enclosure, aspect radio, uh, leaking space. And he argues that we too often fail to see the space between the buildings. Indeed, his title has a double sense to it, right? Uh, the time of the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, the space between. And also this actual physical space between buildings. Right? He breaks down the terminology of embedded and insular churches. Embedded churches... Uh, come up directly to the sidewalk, projecting an ethic for him of hospitality. Insular churches, like I know a megachurch back in the D.C. area that I loved, um, are often set back by hundreds of feet of parking, projecting an air of distance. He also calls for churches to reconsider the parish model, encouraging churches to consider their geographic footprints as relates to their call and ambassadorship in their own particular neighborhoods. And usually here Jacob Bisson is thinking of the neighborhood as defined within a 15-minute walk. Jacobson raises questions of environmental stewardship and human health, particularly as relate to questions of urban density and public transit. Uh, he makes note that I think in New York City there is, despite the fact that if you've been there most of the year, you go there and you've been to Vancouver, in Vancouver and you look for recycling in New York, in, in Manhattan, and can you find it? No, you can't find recycling in Manhattan. So you think, oh, what are they doing in Manhattan, these Neanderthals? But in actuality, because of the density and the way the living is set out, and if you've ever lived in an apartment like Marie and I have, uh, when we were, these days, we're so cold all the time because we live on the second floor of a four-story apartment. But when we first got married, we lived on the 15th floor, and we never had to turn our heat on ever, right? Because just efficiency of space and, and electricity here. And he notes that then in New York, the average uh, use of electricity is about 30% less than the national average for New Yorkers. So Jacobson raises questions, of, without even trying to do anything, right? Um, Jacobson raises questions of environmental stewardship and human health. He also issues a call to reduce community estrangement via third places. Places like coffee shops and pubs that are neither home nor work, allowing for welcome interaction between strangers. Every building makes a moral statement. Every design embodies an ethic. Uh, before concluding and entertaining questions, I have one final activity for you. Write down the first three to five suggestions that come to mind to further promote the flourishing of Vancouver. And again, this may not be bricks and mortar of the built environment, but all these ideas that we've considered and are attached. And if you can, and you might be as sketching disinclined as I am, do your best to sketch one of these suggestions. And maybe it's a bit abstract sketch if it's not brick and mortar. So I'm essentially committing the 
most egregious sin of a former language teacher in giving you insufficient time to actually <laughs> really discuss these things or to use the language. Every building makes a moral statement. Every design embodies an ethic. Circling back to Tim Gorringe, with whom we began, we see that a developed, robust theology of a built environment recognizes that that place matters, that cities matter, and that messages communicated by the ethics of the built environment matter. As we, the church, seek to herald God's redemption in all areas of our life, anticipating the city of the New Jerusalem, questions of justice, hospitality, and equality, density, transit, and zoning. These are no easy questions. Yes, we, yet we must be willing to engage in the conversation, or else we will simply fall into an erroneous, Gnostic-like conception that places cities and the built environment do not matter. And come on, in building a giant, accessible, warm, comfortable, regent-like atrium to serve as the life of the community, Hazel's herd of hares knew what was going on. So must we. Let us not be the church of Elmer Fudd outsmarted by that silly wabbit. (laughs) Thank you. I think we have, sorry, about maybe five minutes for questions. Yes, sure. We have some people in this group who have actually been involved in um, trying to get um, their neighborhood onto the agenda. Wonderful. But we have a mayor here yeah. who doesn't want to consult with neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he doesn't even consult with the council mm-hmm. before implementing a plan. Mm-hmm. And actively discourages that. So what we've got is his interest in working with developers and bike riders. Mm-hmm. And um, so... <laughs> it's not much different in Washington, D.C. right now. Well, you know, I, it's a great idea, but my son mm-hmm. was an urban planner, actually left Vancouver, mm-hmm. because he likes to work with the communities that are being affected by the plant. There he has a chance to sure. do that and loves it and can put a network together faster than anybody else in his building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, uh, it's the thing he really enjoys is let's do this together. Mm-hmm. But a lot depends on the leadership at the top. I don't know if Kane actually had this problem. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned um, Christian involvement in this, and I just wondered if you had some clues about how. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a wonderful point, right? This is... Uh, it's very difficult once we put it into the practicalities. How many of you have sat in on Vancouver City Board Urban Planning Institute meetings? Have you as well? Just one. Just one or two? And what was the feeling that you got from that experience? I want to move out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, yeah, there's, there's really no easy answers except to say that Marie and I took the food course with Janet and Jeff and uh, Wilkinson's Delightful. 
in fact, not to go off topic, but if I were to draw my way to improve the city, it would be just additional urban gardening, including trellises and apartment landscapes. We went to, Janet, what was the name of, do you know the gentleman in Sydney with the incredible orchard? I don't, yeah. Head, but to say we've actually changed the food course so that now it's a weekend, one of the yeah. weekends is in is the it city. in the city, yeah, the yeah. But we went to this uh, uh, this one man's basically like suburban like uh, property that couldn't have been more than one to two acres, and yet it was just it was a smorgasbord of fruits. Right, Bria and Maria were there. Incredible how they used the the system. That's just a roundabout way, Sheila, to saying that in that course we also encountered, uh, you know, the well, what do we do with the, the problems of the food system are so enormous, right, and. Perhaps it sounds a bit like a cop-out, but for me, one of the biggest uh, epiphanies was, no, actually, when I'm taking the bus today intentionally, or when I'm, you know, recycling, or even uh, people might know I carry around trash quite a bit because I'm waiting to find compost. (laughs) And even in these small things, right, or attending a council meeting that seems impossibly uphill, like this is our spiritual act of worship. And I think just that um, releases our, our hands from the responsibility of necessarily being able to contribute to the result and breathes back a life of just joy and thankfulness. Mm-hmm. Of course you want to see change, right? And that sounds really difficult with what your son is doing and then having to move, but yeah, hopefully he encounters more success. But I think a lot of it is that spiritual act of worship and then trusting that as the conversation gets out, hoping that change will, uh, uh, miss more and more, hope change will be on the way. Yeah. Yes? Our parish church was in its other place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, we had a place there, I, I underestimated at the time, but I now that I think that I, I push it more, we had a place where we remembered the dead. Mm. They were still with us. Mm. Modern city has... Mm cemetery is somewhere else rather than mention uh the big condos uh, in Yale Town having a little space in yeah. the building where people who used to be here are remembered. Yeah. They may be buried. Yeah. I mean the city as a, it disconnects us from a lot of the basic things. Yeah. Why any has anybody caught and are urban planners thinking about that sort of thing or that's just not on the uh, not that I saw in the reading. Do you know it all David Lowe? Yeah. Uh, you remember the great controversy with St. John's Hospice at UBC? Mm-hmm. Yeah. People do not want death or dying. Yeah, it's just this, our 21st century conception, right? Out of mind, out of sight. Out of mind, out of sight. There's, I mean, there's a beautiful place there now, but it took an awful lot of struggle to get that place. And I think, like, in a place like Yale Town, oh, that would be powerful. But then, as all these books touch upon, and I only limitedly mentioned, so much comes down to the market at the end of the day, right? And then hopefully there are, God willing and blessed, Christians in, in positions of authority and perhaps on developing councils or even developers themselves that might remind ourselves that the market is not the ultimate consideration. Yeah. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, so I've got a great heart for the city of Detroit. Mm. If you, if you just Google Christian organizations that have a, a sense of vision and calling for the renewal of Detroit, it's inspiring mm. some of the things happening mm. in, in, in 
Midtown Detroit. I, I know of a church plant going on in, in, in Midtown, somewhere around the Detroit Art Gallery, which I have visited frequently. Oh, wonderful. Um, but yeah, you know, Detroit's just amazing. You go about four blocks west of Woodward, which is the main north-south artery, and you're, you're into all of the results of the 1960s riots, you know, yeah. burned on blocks, just vacant blocks. Yeah. But some really creative, positive things, like uh, Farming, experimental farming going on in local city blocks, mm. but just but but and some of the renewal going on is, is Christian people who have a renewal for uh, a part of the city of Detroit mm-hmm. and are investing money and mm. coming up with creative ways of, of getting in front of yeah. Detroit. And absolutely, I think that speaks just to the the uphillness. You let your light shine, right? And and then hopefully, on a practical level, it. Uh, opens conversations with uh, non-believers who would probably be even more skeptical than we would, right? Yeah. Um, a local success story is the Beanie Biodiversity Museum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of you might be aware of it, but um, the Beanies are Christians. Mm-hmm. And they, they moved to create this building at home for the university's biology department and because they want to share the beauty of God's creation. Mm-hmm. It's really a powerful <coughs> and the building itself yeah. is a temple to work stuff. And you feel it when you walk in and you've got enormous work stuff. Oh, yeah. I think that's yeah. That is brilliant. Oh, what a wonderful yeah. example. And David, did you have a last question? Well, I was just going to reflect upon the place, the other side of the water from your slide there. Oh, okay. <laughs> which... I think both uh, both Granville Island, but even more from my perspective, coming east from that, uh, is is a tremendous example of uh, the, the, the kinds of positive values that mm. are very effectively presented today. Because the south side of Phillips Creek, which was redeveloped in the 1970s on city owned land, basically a boom of uh, has those aesthetic dimensions which commonly uh, appear in these uh, in these books of uh, access to water, open space, mm-hmm. density, and so on. But they, it also addresses an issue which is frequently not asked, and I'm glad you did raise it, and that is the city for whom. Mm. Who, who can actually occupy the mm. I mean, when we look at that side of the world, then you're, you're talking at uh, incomes which are probably more than most people in this room are ever yeah. likely to get, mm-hmm. to get into that. The other side of the creek, um, mm. uh, one-third low income, one-third middle income, one-third high income. Yeah. What, what, what a different model. Yeah. What, what a model of really promoting diversity yeah. and uh, different ages. Uh, there's uh, uh, old folks, uh, retirement homes, there's uh, a handicapped co-op, and so it goes on. Mm. I mean, uh, there was, in fact, a thesis done at Regent, probably in the early 80s, that, that looked at that landscape mm. and asked, is this a Christian of the landscape? Mm. Because it seemed to include uh, so many positive uh, values, uh, including, of course, design of nature. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of critiques that we can quite correctly always raise, but it, it's good to see some best practices. Mm. Yeah. And try, to, two know, try to learn from those also. Yeah. 
Um, I, sorry, I think we're about at time as I got a face through the window. <laughs> but thank you for, I hope the discussion goes forth and continues amongst our, the rest of the church and in the neighborhood. Thank you.